This week on the Formation Lap, we're celebrating. Woo! Only one more Saturday without Formula One racing. Guys and we're gals. There. We're, oh, we're almost there. You know, the sun. I just gave it my my best Ric Flair and it didn't go well. My throat hurts now, but I don't care because F1's almost here. The we're sun, almost in Melbourne. The sun's coming out. The engines are revving up. It's that time of year again. Let's party down. Cue the tunes. This is the Formation Lab. Welcome, 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 everybody, to the Formation Lab, the podcast that gets the most smiles per gallon on the internet. <laughs> that actually might be true. <laughs> I think it is. You know, we have a good time recording. We do. Here. We have a. It, it's it's like a highlight for my week, and I think it is for you Absolutely. too. Absolutely. We just get to sit here. We get to goof we, around and and talk about the coolest cars on the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're two giggly bits over here, and just know that every laugh we have is genuine. But we're in especially great moods today because oh, it's it, happening! It's happening! It it's just here. St. Louis hit about sixty-five today, so oh, it's it's sixty-five. The Cardinals are wrapping up spring training. The Formula One car has been packed up. They're shipping to Melbourne right now. It's officially twenty twenty. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Thank you, Michael Bublé. No problem. I thought it was bubbly though, or is the drink lying to me? Uh, the drink might not be lying to you. The guy might. Ooh. People are more likely to lie. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Formation Lap, everybody. The only <laughs> podcast with a vendetta against Michael Bubbly. We are out to change the pronunciation <laughs> of his name, apparently. Um, uh, but yeah, no, it's been really a lot of fun. The buildup to uh, the Formula One and the IndyCar seasons have uh, both of us really jazzed. IndyCar practice starts and testing starts. Uh, uh, F1 just start, wrapped up. Yeah, as I say, IndyCar testing uh, happened last week, and yep. they're they're getting just prepped for uh, for uh, St. Pete coming up. That means right, next right, right. week. That means next week. It's by a double the way, weekend. We got a double weekend, and that means we have double preview duty next weekend. Oh my God, oh, folks! Boy. We might need to take a week off to to rest Whew. for this because that's going to take a lot. That but, is. But uh, everything wrapped up, and it's been really thrilling. But it's been a little light on the news, save for a few things. Yes. Yeah, so we have. Two huge stories and one little thing. You want to start off one little thing or two huge stories? Let's start off two huge stories, have our one little thing, and then talk to our guest, who we are both really jazzed we are, on the show. We are absolutely hyped on him. So first off, uh, Ferrari have hit their latest cheating scandal. Not their only cheating scandal, not their cheating scandal, but just the latest one in the long list of Ferrari mm. controversies. Uh, every team's furious about, well, we, we don't really know all that much what about, do we? So, and that's well, the problem. We, we know enough. So last Friday, the last day of testing, um, there was an announcement from the FIA. With and 10 I'm trying minutes to, to go. I, with 10 minutes to go, there was an announcement. And here's the thing, Luke. You know you know when an organization releases news it's a, and they l- release it on, say, a less than ideal day for viewership? Mm-hmm. What What is the nature of that news typically? Uh, it's bad news. See Boston Red Sox saying that they're trading Mookie Betts on the last Patriots game. Yep. and uh, Or saying, you know, at 6 o'clock on Friday night, oh, by the way, we just laid off 100,000 people. Bye. See ya. And you know it's that that you you that is the time set aside that you know that if there is a news alert, nothing good comes. So you so the second they sent, hey, we have a statement. Both you and I and the entire F1 media and fan world were going, buckle up. Oh boy, we didn't even know what it was about. 
No, but uh, they released this statement. Uh, they had investigated the Ferrari power unit over the uh, offseason and issued a statement and said, After thorough technical investigations, the FIA has concluded its analysis of the operation of the Scuderia Ferrari Formula One power unit and reached a settlement with the team. The specifics of the agreement will remain between the parties. Pause. Remain between the parties is one of the key ones. And number two is we have reached a settlement with the team. That's not a settlement hints that it's not a cut and dry. They're violating rule 17A subsection 2 article 3. That to me means that they caught them cheating and their punishment is something that Ferrari doesn't want out there. Right. And the FIA, back in the Michael Schumacher days, when Jean Todd was uh, really uh, influential and in the political sphere, used to be called the Ferrari International Assistance uh, Organization, FIA. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> but I'm... <laughs> I'm here all week. Tip your waitresses. Um, but it's essentially saying that uh, it, it kind of carries on that, that tradition, that proud tradition of uh, handing Ferrari a slap on the wrist. Settlement, by the way, uh, is a key. Settlement is an interesting word, too, because that obviously means that Ferrari had part of a say in what their punishment was going to be as an organization. You don't reach a or settlement it, with one side. Or how it would play out. Right. So this it may have been yes we'll agree to your to your punishment but you can't say what it is. And the thing to me though is that no matter what it doesn't relinquish the spot from last year. So you just took uh millions of dollars from Red Bull's coffers. Uh you just took millions of coffers uh from McLaren's coffers cuz odds are if they were down on power they might have been on even footing with McLaren. So to me, this is. Uh, there are some teams with a vested interest. Obviously, no Ferrari-powered teams are going to go out there and be like, "Oh, we we agree with this uh, protest," which we're going to talk about here in a second. Um, but uh, yeah, all Ferrari teams stayed pat. Um, I'm sure that it's going to come out. It's honestly the first two days of Melbourne. You're going to find out what this is. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. The whole we're not telling anybody what our punishment is is what is going to raise is what raises so many eyebrows and this is again i think you know i, I saw it on twitter and i forget who it was you'll have to excuse me uh, maybe you saw it too uh it, it's so easily foreseeable by the fia to be like well of course there's going to be a controversy right i don't know how the fia is shocked by any controversy here in that oh well they broke a a rule and that's all we're going to say uh with their power with their unit uh, with their engine, their power unit, whatever side of the pond you're from, right? Mm. Um, they broke a rule with their engine, uh, and we're not going to say, like, what specific one it is. We, as fans, can guess. Uh, but uh, we're not going to say what they did or how they're punished, but uh, here's a statement anyway, and the release of that statement already and says something, doesn't it? The fact that you even have to make it a statement that gives you nothing is interesting in, of, in and of itself. And that, to me, also lends credence to the fact that it's not just... They're cheating with a sensor in the power unit. It's probably something in the fuel. Yeah. They probably put additives. They probably did a whole lot of this. Because there was that uh, thing last year where Christian Horner came out and said, wow, that smells like grapefruit. So what are you putting in the fuel? Let, let me tell you, I've smelled several um, interesting things at my time at the drag strip. I was going to say, please qualify that <laughs> sentence for the love of God. You know, I have a rule off topic here. I have a rule that when uh, somebody says, hey, smell this, my answer is no, because people don't say smell this to anything good. Anyway, no. uh, so good. I've that smelled some interesting. Hashtag, hashtag the more you know. Yeah, the more kids. you know. It's a great, it's a great rule. Uh, I was going to say, though, that uh, I 
I've smelled some interesting things at my drag, at my, uh, <laughs> at the drag strip. And uh, usually, if it goes, qu- usually if it goes quicker, you start smelling that really sweet, sme- sweet smell. You smell that. Uh, you're gonna stop laughing there. No, I'm not. <laughs> it's the fa- the drag strip is located just a few miles away from some uh, adult establishment. It- <laughs> so when he's saying funny, I smell funny things at the drag strip. I'm just dying laughing <laughs> because it's like. What you smelling there, bud? <laughs> what uh, what you got going on, Luke? Anyway, we're, oh, you know, I'm wasting just, time. Just uh, the East St. Boogie, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> East St. Louis is so, uh, like has a said, lot of adult clubs, and the- you can figure out what the boogie is. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, I, you smell a lot of additives, and usually uh, you get that sweeter smell from the alcohol uh, dragsters. And I'd be interested if I passed by that Ferrari and smelled, and it smelled like grapefruit. That would um, be it. Would be interesting, be some specifically kind of- because I think Shell is still their, uh, still the uh, petroleum uh, man- provider. So. so Shell doesn't smell like that. And you walk by and you know exactly what the Ferrari garage yeah. is going to smell like. And if it smells different, like say grapefruit or with a sweet mm-hmm. tinge to it, you're going to wonder why. You can you can outlaw cars specifically on smell. That's how powerful that smell can become. Is uh, uh, we we can walk by a car and go. Nope, that's a, that's an alcohol dragster. Not allowed to race today. It, it's so very obvious. So for somebody to come out and be like, "Hey, you know, they're adding something to the fuel." So, but that is all speculation yeah. until we get to Melbourne next week. But uh, what has happened as a result is that um, the big Mac Daddy, the big boy yeah. on the block right now, six-time double world champion Mercedes AMG F1 team, which was mangled. Each and every time it was said uh, on Drive to Survive on Netflix, which I thought was hilarious. Um, but uh, they uh, they came out with a statement today being joined by uh, McLaren, uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, Grand Prix Limited, Racing Point, Red Bull, Renault, Scuderia Alfatori, and Williams. Um, it should be noted that that means that the only teams who didn't sign were three. Ferrari, Haas Ferrari, and... Uh, it, Ferrari customer teams yeah, color me going? shocked that that figure. happened. But their statement says the following. We, the undersigned teams, were surprised and shocked by the FIA statement on the uh, 28th of fr- uh, February, Friday, regarding the conclusion of its investigation into the Scuderia Ferrari Formula One power unit. An international sporting regulator has the responsibility to act with the highest standards of governance, integrity, and transparency. After months of investigations that were undertaken by the FIA, only following queries raised by other teams, we strongly object to the FIA reaching a confidential settlement agreement with Ferrari to conclude this matter. Therefore, we hereby publicly uh, state our shared commitment to pursue full and proper disclosure in this matter to ensure that our sport treats all competitors fairly and equally. We do so on behalf of the fans, the participants, and the stakeholders of Formula One. Here we go. In addition, we reserve the right to seek legal redress within the FIA's due process and before the competent courts. Oof. Yeah, so not only are they saying, we're doing this for the people, we'll see in court, boys. So and, and if we, and if your FIA, you know, kangaroo court doesn't hold up, we go on to the real ones, buddy. Yeah, and uh, they they got more money than you do, FIA. It's Mercedes. They they win everything. They, it's Mercedes, and also if you're talking money, uh, Renault signed on there. Renault signed on there. McLaren signed on there. Uh, Red Bull signed on there. None of those are well, except for maybe Williams, um, is short on cash. The and strolls aren't the either. The strolls aren't. Yeah, the strolls are, and especially given that. Papa Stroll is doing the Aston Martin thing and might be a suitor for the sale of Mercedes eventually. I, I've been thinking more about the Ineos uh, sponsorship 
and I think Mercedes is going to pull out as a works team soon. But we'll we'll get we'll to that get some into other that. day. Yeah, yeah some other day. day. Um, but it's it's interesting to see the public release of of that in such a bold way, and I think that the FIA will a hundred percent tuck tail and run immediately. I want to say it's interesting too that uh, John Tote and uh, he is up for election next year, I believe, and his reputation has always been. Let's not create controversies within the sport to the point of, you know, the Ferrari international assistance, assisting Ferrari, right? Um, It's interesting that he would create a drama like this with the, hey, we're not disclosing the punishment. A year before he's up for, you know, election and these teams are going to be some of the the, uh, key factors in voting on him going forward. I thought that was very interesting and maybe poor timing. By the man. Yeah, absolutely poor timing. But it's going to be interesting. Uh, obviously, watch this space. We will find out that Ferrari cheated in a big, bad way, and hopefully we find out the punishment. Um, probably, if I had to bet, I haven't heard anybody talk about this yet uh, on any like other platform or show, but I think they're going to lose their veto. Ooh. So it, they're going to have huge. to go with the FIA's thing. So they'll be like, hey, we caught you cheating. You're going to come with us. And you're gonna, you know, toe the company line. If if Ferrari loses the veto, veto, dare I say that is a strong enough punishment right there. Like that, I I don't care what you. I think Christian Horn would be like, oh, all right, I'll take yeah, that. Yeah, I'll yep. take that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Cheerio, lads. So the other, uh, uh, the, the other, yeah, last, the other say, thing the other is works. actually the the last thing is actually rocking the the greater world at whole. I, as Luke has said in the past, I work in real estate. We're seeing mortgage rates drop to like five year lows of like three and a quarter percent. Um, so you're sounding like one of the commercials we air at one hundred and one ESPN. But uh, <laughs> I mean, everybody's refinancing and jumping into buy and sell, and it's a great time to be in real estate. Not so great a time because of what's causing that. Which might be an oncoming worldwide depression. Yeah. But. Uh, Yeah, so coronavirus uh, has continued to threaten uh, the 2020 season uh, and, you know, many more things other than the 2020 season. I know uh, as a traveler this summer to Europe, and I don't know how often people in Europe, you can can, uh, at me at Formation Lab 101, I don't know how often you guys intermingle. All I know is that when two cities are five hours apart from each other in America, that they're pretty close. Oh, yeah. Um. But, you know, I'm traveling to, to Salzburg and to Spielberg this, this summer, right? That's five hours away from, from some quarantine towns. That's close to me as an American. Um, it's rocking the world, and it's rocking the 2020 F1 season. Let's talk about coronavirus and the way, um, that, uh, the way the F1 is handling this. Because the Chinese GP, you know, we, we broke that a while ago. We weren't the first ones to break it, but uh, it's canceled. It's yep. just straight up canceled. It's straight up gone. The interesting part is that was canceled by event organizers and local governments. F1 didn't have a say in that cancel, but for the most part. And they part. won't, and right. they shouldn't. You know, if the government officials say, hey, there's a threat to public health, we're shutting it down, then, yeah, they're, you're not going to get, mm-hmm. you know, any say in that. And they should, that, that, I think that's the right way to be. Absolutely. They did say that uh, they are not going to host any event which doesn't allow a team to compete that will not uh, have an event. So if Ferrari cannot make it to, say, Bahrain, Bahrain will not have a race. I think that's stupid. Um, I, I think if you just say, like, oh, you know, one team, but I think that it could be 
interesting. I, I don't think it's quite as stupid when you consider the fact that Ferrari, Alfa Torre, and uh, Haas have a lot of people invested, and so do uh, Pirelli. If those, if you're missing three teams and a tire manufacturer, and I really don't think that it's fair to the season end standings if teams aren't allowed uh, by this and that. Yeah. Um, so I can kind of see where they're coming from, where it's like, okay, yeah, let's pretend Mercedes and Ferrari are equal, right? Yeah. Um, is it fair to Ferrari if they're banned from Vietnam at the at the end of the year and they just don't have a race with Mercedes getting double, you know, one two and Ferrari not being there? I think that you could make the argument that hey, it kind of ruins the pureness of our championship it adds an asterisk on the side of everybody's name and i think that is something i think they don't want to get into yeah that's probably true i think it's stupid but i you're probably right that's probably the right way to look at it me as a fan of wanting to get you know double weekends in a row and you know as many races as is feasible I want to see the racing. I agree. I yeah. agree. I, so, I absolutely yeah, agree I'm, with I'm that. I'm just being a bummed out fan. But so let's let's talk about three specific races that are coming up, and they've been all over in the news. The Australian GP, as far as we know here, um, and as far as everybody knows, is going forward as planned. That will be uh, like a week and a half from now because it's a Wednesday. Uh, they have a travel ban. Only on Iran and China if you've been in either country within the last 14 days. Now, remember that caveat. It comes back later. But round two, uh, Bahrain has imposed a ban if anyone has been in Italy, Iraq, China, Hong Kong, Iran, South Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, or Singapore within 14 days of travel. So let's talk about Bahrain for a second. Um, Bahrain comes right after Melbourne in the calendar and if you fly from Melbourne to Bahrain, guess where you're flying through? Uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, the United Arab Emirates, uh, who's also included on that band, mm-hmm. on that ban, and uh, that's that's four countries. So you can't even stop over in the right countries anymore. No. Nope. Not only that, but teams are flying to Melbourne right now. Okay, they will leave for Bahrain in under 14 days, unless they're already there right now. They'll leave for Bahrain. Uh, probably on the Monday after that race, mm-hmm. that's less than 14 days away. Yep. Uh, that's 10 days away. So the, if you aren't in Melbourne and you're an Italian manufacturer or you're an Italian engineer uh, with Haas, with Ferrari, uh, with Alfa Tori, with Pirelli, the glut of media people involved there, you know that the Italian media is huge uh, in Formula One, you might not be able to make it to Bahrain. No. Like so- if, if you haven't left already, you're just not allowed there. So Bahrain has said that, uh, hey, we're going to make an exception uh, for special cases for F1 teams. Journalists, they require plans to put – they require teams and workers to submit their travel plans now. And there's a lot of independent journalists who are like, hey, that's going to cost me thousands of dollars if I have to change it. So please, by all means, I had to fly through Dubai. Give me a stamp. Yeah. No, I will – I mean, I guess we're going to find out. You know, I I, I talked about not borrowing trouble uh, a couple weeks ago on the show, and I think – you know, honestly, I think a few more places need to have some winter to knock out some of these uh, cold uh, things. But um, I don't know, I, you know, some of these viruses. But we'll see. Apparently, there are two two or three different strains of the coronavirus now. But, you know, Luke, you and I are both young enough to have lived through swine flu, bird flu, uh, Ebola, which um, SARS was big. SARS was big. Uh, so, you know. Personally, I think that everyone listening should stick to their uh, programs of 
washing, not touching your face. Um, it's a great time to get healthier if you're not already. Yeah, go go for it. So uh, practice best uh, <laughs> practice best practices. <laughs> I'm on a roll tonight. Zing. Um, but yeah, I would I would definitely caution everyone to just be safe. Um, but hopefully everything will turn out fine and this will all kind of flame out here soon. And one and one final uh, note is that Vietnam is after Bahrain. Vietnam has a similar uh, ban on place with uh, with Italy and the countries we previously listed. Vietnam, um, there's an off week between Bahrain and Vietnam where teams would presumably go home. Mm-hmm. Um, not going to happen. Or yep. there's two off weeks, my bad, uh, between those two teams that presumably go home. They can't now because then they would be in Italy within Quarantine 14 zone. days of right of, of traveling to Vietnam. And Vietnam, interestingly, has not said anything about making like a public exception to this rule in regards to that. And as far as I know, Vietnam only had a few cases and most of, and all of them have been cured. So they are running the risk of like, hey, we are clean, clean right now choose to believe those numbers if you will they do border china but if you're clean clean right now uh that is an extra like oh man like we could introduce this to us to yeah. this instead of just add to it that's even worse yep um so it'll be seen if vietnam whose circuit is shaping up uh it's almost almost complete it looks like well yeah then uh, Zandvoort. yeah uh it looks like uh it, it remains to be seen if if they will do anything on that front. But, uh, yeah. you know, knock on wood, you know, everybody stay clean, stay safe, uh, stay hygienic. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then our final little, little itty bitty bit before we cut to our interview uh, that we're both so jazzed for is I have seen the whole thing, I think, three times now. And Luke has only seen through episode three because he's watching it with a friend who's going with him to the uh, Austrian Grand Prix. So I can't fault Luke at all. But... Drive to Survive Season 2. Some people are not so high on it. Me, personally, I think it's wonderful. I think they kept the focus on the midfield teams. They introduced the uh, top two teams. They did a really tasteful thing with Nikki. Big uh, big gap uh, for those who followed closely like we did last year where I ruined Todd's uh, evening with the passing of Charlie Whiting. Um, so it was a bit of a bit of a bummer to not see Charlie included. Um, but, uh, he's not on our wall anymore. Where'd he go? Uh, that's, I, I noticed that today too. Uh, Charlie Whiting's not on our wall right now. That's an, I, I he must've like someone, fallen off or did someone touch our wall of fame. Somebody must've touched it. I'll someone, go find another someone, Charlie Whiting. Someone's going to die. That's what's going to happen. I'll find another Charlie Whiting. So anyway, uh, but they didn't talk about him, but uh, overall I thought the suspense was great. I thought some play- moments were played up, some things were played down, some things weren't played as I saw them, so like Cyril Abitable got a reasonable look. Uh, William Story didn't look like the raving lunatic he was, so that was a big miss. You want to do a real quick uh, winners and losers of the season? Absolutely. Because, I, like I said, I'm through episode three. I have to, I'm have i watching it with my friend. Please don't fault me. Um, I will preface this by saying that you all have to remember that this is not a racing documentary. This is a drama. Like, this is drama-centered. Drama-mentary. Right. It's a drama-mentary. It's not about, oh, look at, you know, look at this race. It's about, like following the drivers and getting a the peek into the back, the back end, like the drama you don't see behind the doors, right? This right. is not meant... So when it's like, oh, man, they added like 20 up, up shifts on the straight on Baku. Yeah, uh, because they're not, they're not focused they on racing. They don't, they don't focus on the racing. They don't really focus on the setup of the cars. They just say, 
you know, this is a tough track because physically it's demanding. You have a lot of G's on you, so mm-hmm. they got to be in peak form, and that's it. And they focus on the story of the drivers and the teams. I love that. I wish they would kind of focus on the pit crews because that one Red Bull mechanic is in almost every single shot. <laughs> and you're like, who is this guy? He's been in every shot since, like, I don't know, 2012. So, But uh, let's do some winners and losers real quick. Yep. Uh, winner, uh, I am going to say, is Carlos Sainz. Carlos Sainz yep. has been kind of not really in much of the uh everybody pushes the the mclaren drivers and that's awesome um but usually Orlando norris is the more camera like the more has more cameras focused on right for good reason he's a very entertaining guy um carlos but carlos Sainz got got a lot of Mm airtime, and rightly so he did turn in amazing performances last year and considering the headspace he was probably in um another winner uh, that I will talk about here in a second, but um, but he mentioned this where it's like you go from a subpar team, you go to another team where you think you're going to be okay, and you start to help them perform, and then they you know cast you off. Your next move has to be something to stick, and if it doesn't stick, you're going to be out of the job and out of the career. So the the move to McLaren was was death defying. So you know, but to see that happen, and you know, it's just I thought it was really cool that he moved to the UK. He was committed. 100% to winning. So that was great. Um, another winner, uh, Alex Albon. Alex Albon. He That was a fantastic story. And uh, the other winner is Alex Albon's PR handler. Um, winner. That guy uh, earned every cent of his paycheck uh, with a specific interview that everybody should go check out in episode six. Um, Red Bull came out looking like heroes. McLaren came out looking like heroes. Uh, Haas is definitely our first loser. Haas is our first loser, and I don't narrow that down to even Gunter Steiner. Gunter Steiner, the star of season one, is not handling his pressure well. And I thought a little bit might have been um, edit, but I think a lot of it, too, is just he's under a lot of stress, and he doesn't look to be handling it well. Yeah. Um, the only thing I'll say is edit-wise, uh, it looked like he just kind of told uh, Kevin Magnuson to shut up in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the Canadian GP, but it didn't really add the context of Kevin Magnuson complaining and complaining about his car for a while after wrecking it in qualifications and having a massive team push to get this car even drivable that was Um, that to me was you know beyond the beyond the pale right that was in canada right and yeah i i think i think that i that's the only part where i can really narrow down like that edit did him a little dirty and it wasn't him doing it to himself was the edit made it sound like he's just sick of kevin magnuson in real life, it was more, dude, our team worked our tail off for you. We, none Just of us sit slept. here and get past. Yeah, none of us are having fun right now because we all stayed up because you wrecked the car because of a mistake you made. So knock it off. Yep. And then Kevin Magnuson was very apologetic afterward. He had a ton of remorse about those yep. things. So... Um, yeah, that was a big, big bummer. Um, Gunter just had didn't handle it well. Yeah. Gene Haas looks sick of everything, um, yeah. and they've said that this this season, <laughs> the future, make or break. yeah, is make or break. Which they said a little aside in the early part of the season, and considering you finished twenty five percent of your cars that have started in Australia have finished so Oof. far. Oof. Yeah, not a great start. But um, the other winners, uh, like I said, Red Bull, Christian Horner, uh, losers. Uh, Ferrari and spe- specifically uh, Sebastian Vettel, who haven't seen this like, episode. Yeah, so uh, Seb is not painted in the greatest of lights. Um, he is seen as he is painted as the uh, bitter champion that can't win anymore. So, and who might even sabotage Charles Leclerc? Who knows? Um, but the final winner, I will say uh, for me, Will Buxton. 
Will Buxton. I, Will Buxton is I see, a rock star. I see people make like just hating on him in in on like Reddit threads about the episodes. They're wrong. They're wrong. I Will Buxton. I tell you what, my my friend really appreciated Will Buxton because he didn't have that much knowledge of the sport going in, and Will Buxton is incredible at framing things. He he can frame it for anyone, and he's uh, most of his talent is in his ability to tell a story, and. Tell it in such a way like uh, you'll get there um, with the Williams uh, episode. Um, but there's a bit where he, to show how awkward it was with Patty Lowe at the beginning of the season, he says, you know, and Patty just didn't want to take any responsibility. So it was like, see you later, Patty. And it was just, it was, it was kind of the way the entire paddock treated Patty. And I thought it was just perfectly encapsulated. I also watched him a lot in preseason testing. His, his coverage is fantastic. I think he is absolutely one of my voices of summer. Um, so Will Buxton must always remain with Formula One. But uh, those are my winners and losers. I'm going to tack on one more winner and one more loser. Right? Loser yep. Antonio Giovinazzi because he wasn't in the season at all. I think he might, might have seen his face in the background. I didn't know that he was in the season at all. I didn't, yeah. Well, he is a loser in the F1 season as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I will add uh, one more winner. Okay. All right. And that winner is Romain Groschan who got a pretty nice treatment after what was a very rough season for him for Haas. And I don't think he deserved it. Uh, the the nice treatment? Yep. Yeah. I mean he he he's rough. We do not we do not endorse the trolling of Romain Grosjean on on social media platforms. No. no. If you're going to troll anybody, it. do Lance Stroll. The troll is in his name. Yeah. <laughs> he's asking for it. Or do Not they, his dad. His dad is a brilliant businessman, but the son who doesn't have any or, skills. Or you know what? Lando Norris would probably be hilarious if he had a troll. Like he would see the humor in it. I feel like I do too. I also think not if it was like a terrible troll, but just like a simple troll. I feel like Lance Stroll would appreciate. I feel like Lando Norris needs a break. Lando Norris would appreciate it. I think he needs a break. I think he does. <laughs> like from social media, he just seems burnt out. He does a little bit. So give it to Carlos. Give it to Carlos. Carlos would be able to. Like uh, he went after uh, Lewis Hamilton. He got a Hamilton got a Barcelona jersey. And uh, Carlos Sainz immediately <laughs> chimed in, a la Madrid. So it's like, oh, here we he, go. I think I think it was like, we need to have a talk at the paddock yeah, or something we, like that. We need to have a talk. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot believe you. Uh, I love that ad, the Amazon ad, where uh, Lando is wearing his helmet. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm wearing this as long as you're driving. I cannot believe you. <laughs> I love that timing so much. We might have to catch, catch, grab that clip. But uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for news, uh, personal podcast news. Uh, we uh, So we are talking, coming up here to Wolfgang Monser, a German F1 reporter extraordinaire. I personally will be on the Everything Racing podcast uh, that records on Friday. I don't know when they're putting that episode out. They are having a extrav an interview or a predictions extravaganza and they've invited uh us and they've invited uh the uh the Outlap podcast, Outlap F1 podcast over onto uh their show. Uh Tim couldn't make it just time wise because uh everything racing is over in Britain and that causes that means we have to record during work hours. Uh, but we will be on that, so uh, go check them out, and then uh, hopefully, you know, people everything racing might come on over here and yeah. listen to our stuff. Uh, so I just wanted I'd love to, to plug have the them. outlap on last time. Unfortunately, I had to be called away, but I would love to talk to those guys. They're, yeah, they're they're, cool they're very good. We'll do some GP breakdowns, and then yeah. uh, next week is our preview, and we're we're back into it, baby. Metal. So All we're right. gonna cut it right here, and uh, let's go talk to Wolfgang Monser. The Formation Lab. The Formation Lab. Welcome back to the Formation Lab. We are joined by German journalist Wolfgang Monser. 
Uh, we met Wolfgang at the Gateway Race last year, and he just has all sorts of stories to tell. Wolfgang, how are you? Uh, Wolfgang is in Phoenix right now, am I correct? Yes, yeah, actually I'm in Scottsdale, I have a little drink in my hotel, and um, yes, I'm here for the NASCAR weekend, I was last week in Auto Club Speedway in California, I had a great scenic drive through the California desert with my rental car, yeah, and now here I'm in Arizona, and looking forward to the next race meeting, it's a very special oval racetrack, ISM Raceway or Phoenix Raceway, whatever is the official name, because this kind of racetrack doesn't exist over in Europe. Not it's even an oval track, but it's also also located in a desert. And uh, um, except some small parts in southern Spain, we don't have deserts in Europe at all. So it's a very, very special location for me when I'm coming over here from Europe. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Wolfgang, how long have you been? Uh, you've been in, in covering motorsports for years. How long specifically have you been uh, covering motorsports? Believe it or not, I, I, this is my 54th year. I mean, um, I started already because I was motivated by my school teacher when I was 10, 11. He was very active at that time in kart racing, or at that time it was still called go-kart racing. And I lived at that time in a little town uh, outside of Mönchengladbach, which is very close to the German-Dutch border. And at that time, until I would say maybe late 70s, there were the most successful go-kart drivers nationally and internationally coming from this little town. And he more or less launched me or caught my interest in motor racing through go-kart racing. At that time, there was only two categories, 100cc and 125cc. 100cc was the international class where the world championship was driven, and 125cc was the shifter cards. And he started in both categories um, on the national level. And what really brought me in touch with um, top drivers who later on went into Formula 3, Formula 2, and Formula 1, when I went with him uh, to European and World Championship events with my teacher who raced himself, uh, mostly um, when they were raced in, in Italy. And then I started when I was already in school for a, um, a go-kart magazine, just uh, writing about races and go-kart racing for many years. And uh, so I came in touch with race drivers who later went on into Formula 3, 2, and 1. So across across your entire career in Formula 3, yeah. 2, 1, and IndyCar, what's been yeah. your favorite like period of time to cover any one of those series? Well, I must say maybe um, that's just personally for me, but the best era for me in Formula One, maybe to some degree also in IndyCar, were the 70s until late 80s in Formula One. At that time, it was a very, very dangerous time. Um, a lot of accidents. I mean, safety standard like it is nowadays doesn't or did not exist. But nevertheless, even underfunded teams had a chance to win. So except Ferrari and BRM, British Racing Motors, a team which is not existing anymore, um, they had their own engines. But all the other teams had Cosworth engines, um, and they had a chance also to win. And another good thing is, at that time, um, a very, um, for me, very healthy part of the rules at the time, 
if you came into Formula One as a team owner or entrant, you don't have to build your car. You could do it, but you don't have to. I mean, Roger Penske built their own cars, and uh, when he saw it was not successful with Mark Donoghue, he switched to March customer chassis. But I worked for PR voice for a lot of underfunded teams, uh, which had some quite good results compared to the top teams and with a very, very small budget. And for me, that was the most enjoyable time. I mean, very dangerous but also very enjoyable. I mean, the Camera D was very great. I mean, rich teams helped the poor teams. The same in IndyCar. Um, there's nothing wrong with IndyCar nowadays, except that I personally would say to see IndyCars going back to multiple chassis um, nowadays is just Stalara. I think that we have maybe a different chassis manufacturer, another chassis manufacturer is maybe wishful thinking, as uh, companies like Reynard, Lola, uh, March, they all disappeared, and it's now Dallara left. But in the 70s, you had so many mostly British companies dominating Indica and uh, and Formula One, mostly March. When you look into the mid-70s or late-70s, March and Lola was supplying nearly 90% of the Indica grid, the same in Formula One. And uh, that was very enjoyable, and uh, I really enjoyed that time. It changed, especially in Formula One, in the early 80s, uh, when Renault came with a turbo-powered car in 81 or 82, and then all the big money came in, and then, unfortunately, the small teams disappeared. And for me, it was a little bit uh, melancholic and sad to see it. Nowadays, it's just politics, especially in Formula One, and uh, sometimes I still remember the good old times in Formula One, 70s, late 70s, early 80s, and that was, for me, one of the great errors in Formula One, and the most competitive as well. So with all those years, let's narrow it down to the 70s and 80s then. Um, yes. What are some of your favorite stories? Like, what story just really stands out as, like, I can't believe I got to follow that and I got to cover that and I got to see that kind of story uh, just happen? Yeah. For me, um, I'm not sure if the race fans nowadays will remember that, but in the... Uh, mid-70s, late-70s, you had an American team that had quite uh, some regular involvement of American teams in Formula One beside Roger Penske and uh, Panelli Jones. Um, We had a team, I worked on the PR side when they assigned a German driver, Hans Stuck, which was a shadow team from Don Nichols. Uh, Unfortunately, he died roughly two years ago. Um, Very, very... um, uh, already old in his early 90s, and he started with a uh, Formula 5000 team, then Canem team, and made the move into Formula One. And for me, he was Don Nichols was one of the most colorful character, not even in Formula One, but in all my time in in motor racing. I mean, the stories about him, and I was told uh, last weekend in when I was at Auto Club Speedway. There's also a plan that um, biography will soon uh, come on the American book market market about Don Nichols. That was one of the great times uh, when uh, working PR-wise one year when Hans Stuck was driving for Team Shadow Don Nichols Racing in Formula One. So what what other colorful characters were around back then that really stand out in your mind? Well, at that time, for example, when you um, remember in the mid-70s, we had um, a team, uh, a guy called John McDonald, British um, uh, car dealer, 
who was a very, very close friend to Bernie Ecclestone, and he always got uh, customer cars from Brabham when Bernie Ecclestone was uh, the boss of Brabham Formula One team. And he was also a very, very colorful character. I mean, always underfinanced, also you get the equipment from Bernie Ecclestone. I remember a particular story, German Grand Prix, it must be 75 or 74. At that time in Germany, the television uh, business was just two channels, Channel 1 and Channel 2. And Channel 1 was showing um, Formula 1 races, not live, except the German Grand Prix. And in 74, there was a German driver, Iron driver, named Rolf Stommelen from Cologne. And um, the German um, organizer of the German Grand Prix, the Automobile Club of Germany, approached John McDonald if Stommelen could drive one of his cars because that was where the audience, the television audience, and also the spectator tickets, the selling figures of spectator tickets for the German Grand Prix, which was at the Nürburgring at that time. So um, Stommelen came up to the Nürburgring, tested the car. It was not good, was not bad. I mean, medium, but uh, he had a good chance to qualify in mid-grade. Unfortunately, what was the problem that John McDonald signed already uh, a guy from uh, Switzerland, Loris Kessel, or in Germany we say gentleman driver, a very rich guy, but uh, totally hopeless in a Formula One car. And this guy turned up the night before the uh, before offic- official qualifying. And uh, when John McDonald was in the hotel close to the Nürburgring, he said to me, okay, come up with me, do the translation for me because his English was not good. And then we went up to the room, and he, I translated for for John McDonald that Loris Kessel wanted to have his money back, and if not, he wanted to drive the car. But there was also the contract signed with the Automobile Club of Germany with Rolf Stommelen. So the money was all spent of Loris Kessel. He couldn't repay John McDonald, Loris Kessel. So what he did, he called the local police. He already came up with his lawyer. He maybe expected a situation like this from Switzerland, and uh, John McDonald went into prison uh, before race day in Koblenz, the next big city to the Nürburgring, and stayed there six weeks. So at that time, I would say in big inverted commas, it was normal that money was spent, and then other drivers took the drive, and the team owners or team principal uh, uh, had troubles um, financially and also legal-wise. At that time, it was more or less normal in Formula One. It was much cheaper to run nowadays in Formula One, of course, <coughs> but nevertheless, at that time, four, five, six hundred thousand British pounds was also a big amount of money. That that was like six incredible stories in like one shot. Wolfgang. Yeah. that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, but, maybe I have another one before I forget. It. I guarantee I <laughs> maybe you will. Maybe you ever heard about it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Desiree Wilson. She was a lady driver. And to this present day, she only the only lady driver winning a Formula One race. I think it was Easter Monday, 1980, in Brands Hatch. Also, it was not a World Championship event. It was a, a Formula One event for the National Aurora British Formula One series. That was a championship with Formula One cars, but not with so much powerful engine like in the World Championship. So she won the race, also driving for Ram Racing, John McDonald's team. And then she was so, I mean, positive, motivated that she made the move to the World Championship. 
And, uh, but she could never qualify. And later, when she was at the female pace car team in Indica, she told me that she, uh, that he, she found out that um, the McDonald Ram team just gave her an underpowered uh, engine, a Cosworth engine, which had 60, 70, 80 horsepowers less. And that was the reason she could never qualify. But one of the best lady drivers ever seen in open wheel racing. She's living nowadays somewhere in uh, um, in, uh, in Utah, close to Salt Lake City, and together with her husband is a designer of, of racing tracks. But so far to the present day, she was the only driver, lady driver winning a Formula One race um, in, a, in a private uh, Brabham car. I think that's probably my favorite story you're going to tell us tonight because that's incredible. <laughs> so what do you think is kind of the current situation with opportunities that are available for drivers with extreme talent in Formula One, IndyCar, top motorsports like that? Yeah, I would say, well, you know, um, you must be at the right time, at the right place, regardless if you're a female driver or male driver. Um, One best example, in my personal opinion, a very, very good driver, both in Europe and both in America, who never had the chance to have good equipment, um, was or is uh, Brazilian Roberto Moreno, who's living now close to Miami. Uh, both in Europe, I mean, in Formula One, he was driving for terrible teams. I mean, uh, terrible equipment, and also in IndyCar. Also, everybody knew that he's a good driver, but for some reasons, he never made the move to a top team, except, I think, the Canadian Grand Prix somewhere in the early 80s when he was a replacement driver for Benetton, for one of the drivers. I think it was Nelson Piquet, and he finished second. But except us, he was always for underfunded teams, terrible organized teams. And another big, really good example that a driver was very, very good from the talent point of view, but never made it to the top is Tommy Byrne from Ireland. I never, I don't know if you ever heard about Tommy Byrne. Uh, he came from Ireland, from a little town close to Dublin, and made it through Formula Ford to win the British Formula 3 championship. And as a prize, British Formula 3 at that time in the late 70s was sponsored by Marlboro Philip Morris Tobacco Company, when it was a possible uh, tobacco company-backed um, teams in, uh, in motor racing. And he got a test drive with um, the McLaren team. And uh, unfortunately, Ron Dennis, who was a boss of McLaren Formula One racing at that time, didn't like Tommy Byrne, who had a very extreme character outside the race car. Actually, he was even more extreme than James Hunt. He liked to go to parties, drinking, coming back very late before qualifying. But he was very, very quick. So the test was fake. And he had a car where he could not show his true potential. And Senna was one of the top guys winning the test. And then Tommy Byrne ended up um, driving one year in Formula One for a team called Theodore Racing for a very, very rich multimillionaire from Hong Kong, Teddy Yip, who was the organizer behind the Macau Grand Prix. But the team was totally underfunded. And after one year in this underfunded team and terrible organized team, I mean, he disappeared and made races in, 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 in uh, open wheel racing in Mexico, sports car racing. And um, finally, he ended up very frustrated and nowadays working as an instructor for the Mid-Ohio Racing School. And the last time I saw him, he looked very frustrated. I mean, it's no wonder. I mean, when you know that you are good 
and you have no chance to show it when you have bad equipment. That must be very depressive. So that's two examples, Tommy, uh, Tommy Byrne and Roberto Moreno, great drivers, but never had the chance to show their potential in great equipment. So you talked about, you know, some, some pretty uh, notorious partiers, shall we say. Uh, yeah. wh- who are some of the, the wildest uh, drivers you've ever had to cover behind the scenes? Uh, well, let me have, a, I have to sing out. Maybe it was James Hunt when he won the championship uh, with half point ahead of Nicky Lauda at that year when Nicky Lauda had his terrible accident at the Nürburgring and made the comeback just six weeks after the accident. In my personal opinion, Hunt was a character much, much easier to handle. Very open. I mean, I remember at that year when he won the World Championship, we had a great interview at the Tip Top Bar in Monte Carlo. At that time, it was the number one night spot in, uh, in Monte Carlo for all the Formula One drivers till one or two in the morning. And then I told him, well, you know, next morning at nine o'clock in a couple of hours, we have to qualify. And he didn't care. He said, oh, can, can I have another beer and have another drink? Are you satisfied with my, with my answers, with the interview? Compared to Nicky Lauda, I mean, okay, you don't want to talk bad about a guy who is dead now, but unfortunately, Nicky Lauda, in my opinion, changed very dramatically his character when he became very famous and successful and the world champion with Ferrari. He was an easy guy when he worked uh, when he drove for a team like March and PRM and uh, had no success. But when the success came, and there are other countless examples of other drivers in various championships, something makes click, and then something in the character is changing. I like the underfunded guys, I mean, who stay simple. Another example is um, Jim Crawford, a Scottish driver who never had the chance to show his potential in Formula One. Then he switched over to uh, IndyCar, immigrated to America, and one guy who recognized his potential was um, John Maynard, the sponsor now of the Wood Brothers in NASCAR, who sponsored him in IndyCar racing. But uh, nevertheless, I mean, the big break never came for Jim Crawford, and he also retired relatively frustrated. But in my opinion, he was one of the very, very, very good, talented drivers from, from Scotland. So... We're, you, you talked about uh, partiers and yeah. things like that. You also touched on yes. uh, Bernie a bit. Um, and I'm yes. curious, yes. With, with the perspective that you have, what are, what are, in your opinions, the best decisions that Bernie made for Formula One? And what decisions would you have made differently if you were in his... I don't want to call him the worst, but you know, what, what decisions yeah. might you have cautioned him against? Well, he made, um, positively, I mean, he built up Formula One what it is nowadays. I mean, a very, very um, political sport, political influence sport. I mean, um, media attention is incredible worldwide. Before he came in, I mean, Formula One was shown in television, but not so dramatically like it is nowadays. Uh, what I would be increase is, um, or, or improve, sorry, or what I would be improve in Formula One is the spectator and media treatment. I mean, I would do it, make it, in case it would be possible, so open like NASCAR and IndyCar that the fans have more access to um, to the drivers, to the garage. I mean, that is not anymore the case. I mean, especially in Monte Carlo nowadays, 
the fans uh, and the um, the spectators are treated not very, very well when you consider how much money you have to pay for tickets in Formula One, because simply the organizers make money with the television coverage. And uh, I would improve the um, uh, the situation for fans more enjoyable to make also a little bit easier for the fans to talk to the drivers. Nowadays, maybe I'm wrong, but my personal opinion is now that the top drivers are acting a little bit like prima donnas. It was different in the 70s when you could approach the drivers, they could talk with the fans, the access to the garage and pit roads were a little bit easier or much easier as it is nowadays. Now everything is closed and when you go now through a garage in Formula One, it's like a ghetto that you just people are inside there who have to work. And it's just, I mean, just a handful of fans mostly at Thursday before the race activity starting on uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And that's a little bit poor to see. I would improve the, the fan situation and try to make it very similar to NASCAR and IndyCar, more enjoyable for the, for the fans. And, you know, so part of the... Part of the angle of this podcast is, as I grew up watching a lot of IndyCar yeah. races, and it, uh, yeah. Tim grew up watching a, a whole lot of uh, of F1 races, and I've always yeah. said that uh, I think IndyCar really does it right in the way that you know you have fan access, the the pit passes aren't too much. Would you agree? Yeah. Would you think that IndyCar really uh, nails that aspect down well? Yes, I mean, 100% I agree. I mean, uh, from the fans' point of view, spectator point of view, IndyCar doing a much, much better job than, than Formula One. They know that the fans are important. For example, a long, long time ago when I came, when there were still two camps, car championship auto racing teams and uh, Indy Racing League, this unnecessary war between two similar championships. When I came to a race meeting in mid-Ohio to the small village Lexington uh, nearby the racetrack, I was so astonished to see and, and positively surprised when I saw all the banners at hotel, at pubs, and restaurants, uh, welcome race fans, welcome race fans. You don't see this in Formula One. So they are totally on the, on the, on the right way and uh, know that the fans are very important and open the garage for fans, make it easy for the fans to have access to drivers, team owners, that they can ask questions. And I really like it. And um, I spoke also to a couple of Formula One journalists who came over to a couple of IndyCar races, mostly Indianapolis the last years, and they're totally speechless as well. So when you're coming from Formula One, I would say it, um, that sounds maybe a little bit funny, but I would say IndyCar is the open world, and Formula One is more or less like a prison camp where you always get told what is not allowed, what is not allowed. And in, form, and in IndyCar, I mean, everybody can, can have easy, uh, much more easy access to uh, garage and drivers and teams uh, than in Formula One. And from my personal point of view, when I make interviews with team owners and, for, and IndyCar drivers compared to Formula One, um, time-wise, my interview time is much, much shorter than in Formula One. But the answers are more productive than in Formula One. The people are talking and talking and talking. And then at the end, you have no, no result. People talking with a lot of things and saying absolutely nothing. So that is absolutely right. I agree with you that IndyCar is on the right way. Hopefully, one, Formula One will work up one day and uh, will make it similar or identical. Well, I would say uh, at the moment it don't look like it will be, but 
also nothing is impossible in motor racing. So let's let's uh, stop on IndyCar for just a second. I, when I before I started this podcast, before I even worked in sports media, yeah. uh, I yeah, was yeah. Uh, I was a fan of of Alexander Rossi. I remember watching him come up, and then I started in media yeah. right about the time that he shifted over to IndyCar. And I've just taken yeah. a great interest in his career because I think he's an incredibly talented driver. And I was wondering if there's anybody in racing right now who really excites you, who you really just like as a driver. In IndyCar right now. In in IndyCar or in Formula One? Well, I mean, what is very exciting for me, actually, um, exciting is not the right word, I would surprising. Um, when you look back in Formula One, what happened last year, the situation with Williams. I mean, Williams in the early, in the early 70s was always underfunded team. For example, in 74, yeah, I think it was in 1974, Dallara was building the Formula One cars for Frank Williams and um, um, Jacques Lafitte from France and Arturo Massario were the drivers. And the team was so underfunded that they don't even have enough money to make the way in 74 um, with their transporter back to England. So I think with the prize money, they finished among the top 10. And at that time, sometimes prize money was paid cash. Um, team principal Frank Williams was uh, buying the fuel for the transporter. And um, then they became very successful when uh, uh, John Bernard became the, uh, the designer and designed the, uh, the Formula One car and winning the championship with Alan Jones from Australia. And now it looks like they're struggling again. And last year, I mean, they were always last, last. Okay, they closed the gap to the, to the teams ahead of them, but nevertheless last. So it was surprising for me and also at the same time impressive I mean, how they could motivate to carry on go racing. Hopefully, as it looks like now, they will be more successful. They had a good test in Barcelona um, 10, 14 days ago. So hopefully they were coming back. So that is very surprising and, and impressive for me. In IndyCar, I would say at the moment... Uh, there was one driver, very, very impressive for me. Unfortunately, he left, not even IndyCar, but also America, and it's now in DTM, the German touring car races, is, uh, is Ed Jones. And also another guy who's impressive for me as a driver and also as a character, he's driving this year for HFL racing, is Charlie Kimber. And the one reason also he's a good driver it's even more impressive for me that this guy is always smiling, smiling and positive, motivated, as long as I know him. So that is one of the drivers, Jones and, and Charlie Campbell, really am, am impressive for me. And uh, hopefully they will, uh, Ed Jones will come and make his way back into, uh, into IndyCar racing from DTM. Actually, in DTM, there's a big question mark behind the sport's future. As you maybe know, that we have now in DTM only two manufacturers left, Audi and BMW, as Aston Martin has pulled out. But unfortunately, this year it looks like there was no place for him to have a ride in, uh, in IndyCar. Another guy who is very impressive for me in IndyCar, I know him for many years when he was in Europe, is Sebastian Baudet. And that's uh, fortunately has also now a drive. It looks very, very um, uh, slim that he could have an IndyCar drive earlier in the year, but now I think he's uh, 
a couple of races for AGF Road Racing and sharing a car with Tony Kanan. So that's also very impressive to see uh, Sebastian Baudet having his success in America as an open wheel driver. Because in, uh, in Europe, when I met him the first time in Formula 3, in Formula 3000, I mean, everybody asked why he could not go to Formula 1. When he finally did, when he was already an uh, IndyCar champion, or at that time uh, a Shemka champion when he was driving for uh, uh, for Newman Haas Racing. I mean, he shoes, unfortunately, the wrong team, uh, uh, Toro Rosso, and was standing in the shadow of Sebastian Vettel, and that killed his former one career, and he went back to America and continued his career here in open wheel racing in IndyCar. So... You you touched on uh, DTM and the 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 two manufacturers yes. that are in there. Um, yes. We recently saw that uh, the owners of Audi uh, Volkswagen have said that they're going to move the entire company out of uh, combustion engine racing altogether uh, by like 2025. Mm-hmm. I think is their goal. What yeah, and yeah. that kind of yeah. inspires me to ask you what you kind of think. What rumblings you've heard about the future of not just IndyCar and F1, but uh, of motorsport as a whole. Uh, yeah, when you look now as a motorsport as a whole, I mean, Formula E, everybody, uh, I mean, manufacturing-wise, seems to jump into the Formula E category. Porsche was one of the latest uh, manufacturer, and uh, well, if one of the companies Audi or BMW is pulling out of TTM, that is more or less the end of the of the series of the championship. Um, I think there's a contract with the current uh, television company, the AAD, the first channel, that there must be at least three uh, manufacturers to show the races live. So Aston Martin left, we have two two left, so I don't know how many cars will be run this year, but you cannot make in long-term a championship with with 10 cars. Nevertheless, it's the the highest national championship. In my opinion, concerning electrical racing, um, and I think it's in 2022, uh, the Rallycross World Championship will also move to electrical cars. Um, I spoke a couple of times with engineers, not from motor racing, but from the road car department, and they told me currently at this moment, maybe it's different in the future, but at this moment, there is no alternative to a combustion engine. I mean, electrical cars are great. They're good for the environment. Maybe they are good for um, for driving in a in a city center, but for long distance racing, I mean, it's uh, for long distance driving. I mean, there is at the moment no no alternative for, for to a combustion car, uh, as simply the uh, the distance with the electrical uh, car with electrical powered car is still not enough, and then also the recharging procedure also it's much shorter than a couple of years ago. It's still too long. I, I give you an example from the city where I live, close to Frankfurt. Uh, we have a, a company in Frankfurt, a taxi company. They are running with Tesla cars. I mean, and they got big attention, media attention. And um, that was last year when I got a lift with one of these uh, cars, with a Tesla car, to the airport, which is about 15 miles away from the place where I live. And the guy picked me up, and then the car halfway to the airport, the Tesla car became slower, 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 and slower. And then the taxi driver excused himself. He said, I simply forgot to recharge the car. So I was stuck in the middle of nowhere. And fortunately, I picked up an ordinary taxi with a fuel engine-powered car. 
which Elbeck could make it in time to the airport to catch my flight. So to make a long story short, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the electrical car, but the secret, I think, is in the battery technology. And as far as I know, at the moment, Tesla more or less is on the right way with battery technology. All the other cars, I mean, the batteries for road cars, maybe not for race cars, but for road cars, are still too uh, too heavy. And then also the, re- the recharging procedure is still too long. And then I also can speak from Frankfurt and from Munich. I mean, the recharging stations are, are much, much too less. So when you go to Frankfurt with the electrical-powered vehicle and want to recharge it, you line up in the morning, let's say, between 5 and 7 in the morning, and waiting hours and hours until it's your turn, and you can plug in and recharge your, your vehicle. And then it takes another one hour or maybe a little bit more to recharge your car and that it's, that it's much too long. The only manufacturer of electronical-powered vehicle which makes a very, very good business, I only can say from big cities in Germany, is, uh, is Vespa, Piaggio. They're, um, they're renting and uh, selling this powered electric scooter. And in the, especially in the summer, you see all the bankers in the Frankfurt area, because bank, Frankfurt is uh, the financial capital of Germany. All the bankers are driving with the electrical-powered um, Vespa scooters to their, uh, to their working office, especially as also uh, the, uh, the parking lots, the parking area are very, very expensive in Frankfurt. So that's the only exception that, the, uh, that Piaggio and Vespa from Italy makes a very, very good business now with electrical-powered vehicles with the scooters. So, and I, I don't know how the world currently sees, I know everybody sees batteries as a yeah. green thing, but I, I know the amount of lead that goes into batteries, and I don't know how good that is yeah. for the environment. I think overall the economic impact, if you're looking at everything collectively, might not be the yeah. best long-term option. Um, so do you see in that light with the, kind of that mindset, do you think Formula E is the future and will revolutionize motorsport, or do you think it's a flashy stopgap for now and good for manufacturers who want to shine up their uh, PR outlook given that they've, uh, I mean, I know VW for one has, uh, is trying to shine yeah. things up after the, uh, the scandal that they had a few years back with their uh, diesel yes. cars here in yeah. America. Yeah. So what yeah. do you, do you think it's well, more of a stopgap? Yeah, Formula E, especially Formula E, it was a good idea of the guy, uh, Mr. Agak, who was a team owner in Formula uh, in GP2, which is now Formula 2, and uh, had this idea of going into Formula E. was a great idea, and it's relatively new. I think they're now in the fifth or sixth year, but uh, when you look to the history, motor racing is still a relatively new championship. And everything what is new caused the intention of the uh, human nature. So when you create a new championship or a new movie or whatever, it, it, it creates attention. In the future, I don't know if this is the right way to go. I personally attended two races the last years, both in Berlin. I was impressed. It's a great championship, but I personally, maybe I'm an old-fashioned guy, I miss a typical um, uh, a traditional race engine sound of a motor race engine, regardless if it's Formula E or whatever, or maybe Rallycross in two years. So what I heard that maybe uh, Dallara is, 
is acting or is um, putting now a, a simulator to the Formula E engine to create engine sound. If this is the right way, I don't know. Um, and long term, I have no idea. You only can speculate. So it's, it depends what the, what the technology or what the future of the battery technology will be. Maybe there will be lighter. Maybe there will be better. Maybe you can go a longer distance, which you can already do now in Formula E. I mean, the last year, uh, drivers have to switch cars halfway between the race because the battery went flat. And all the batteries, as far as I know, in Formula E are built now and designed and, and manufactured by the Williams Grand Prix engineering teams, which is the uh, sister company of the Williams Formula One Grand Prix team. So if this is the future, I don't know. I only can say from my point of view, I personally like the old-fashioned way of motor racing, where you can hear a sound. I mean, the special engine sound, regardless if it's turbocharged or not turbocharged, normal aspirated or not aspirated. I mean, V8, V6, choose what you want. Maybe other people have different opinion. I grew up in an era when, when electrical cars, you're not even there discussing about it. But also now this is also environmental stuff. Um, I'm personally skeptical if, if, if electrical cars and electrical racing is the, the way to go. Um, we have to wait what will be the, um, the future for battery technology. Um, maybe there is, there is some more solutions for battery technology in the future. As I said, when they become lighter and more powerful and you can go a longer distance. But at the moment, I personally have been skeptical. I'm not sure if this is correct or not, if I'm wrong or right. But... That's, that's my opinion. So overall then, as it stands right now, what, and in any form of racing, what excites you most about racing right now and uh, what excites you most, uh, what prospect excites you most in the future? Well, I would say personally, I like any kind of racing. I mean, uh, it's a little bit sad to see when I speak to Formula One journalists from time to time, they're just looking into Formula One, not not uh, IndyCar, not NASCAR, not drag racing. I even like drag racing, which exists in Europe, but on a small level compared to America. I like the uh, technical part in motor racing, uh, for example, aerodynamic stuff. I also I'm not uh, I'm not my my background is not technician, but uh, when you see the aerodynamic part in in, in 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 motor racing, especially in drag racing, they go a very short distance, just a quarter mile, and these people are just even do wind tunnel testing for the short amount of, of, of distance they're going, this is very fascinating for me. I'm, I'm fascinated about technology, um, NASCAR, drag racing, IndyCar, shoots what you want, even, even dirt track racing. I mean, dirt track racing, the sprint car and midget stuff, don't, uh, unfortunately, also does not exist in Europe. When I'm in America, I'm always trying to see a dirt track or a midget or a World of Outlaws race because that is the most entertaining kind of racing what I've ever seen so far in my personal motor racing life. Very old-fashioned. It's just a V8 engine and a frame chassis. But entertainment-wise, I mean, compared to Formula One, Formula One to, to, uh, to sprint car racing, I would say more or less it's a sleeping pill. Yeah? And I love it. <laughs> Sorry, that... that... That is probably, I, I take it back from before, that is my favorite thing that you said all night, that yeah. tow track racing is your favorite. Totally agree, it. too. It's great. It is fantastic. Yeah, I, I want to add another thing. Uh, 
so far, I never could do it to the Chili uh, Bowl, which is always in January. Uh, I was told it's a race in Tulsa, Oklahoma, running with Midget in a, in a big hall, not, not uh, outdoor. And then also in August, we have the Knoxville Nationals, which is the biggest spring car race, maybe not in America, maybe worldwide. I was told Australia and New Zealanders are coming over. I know Knoxville in and out. I went to the museum. I was told a lot of things and explained about sprint car racing, but I could never do it to the race. So that is on my bucket list to make it one day to the Knoxville Nationals in August and to the Chili Bowl in, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma in, in January. I, I... I tell you what, uh, we let's figure out a way that we can get there because I would love to go to those two. We actually have a really big one in St. Louis that's um, the Gateway Dirt Nationals, uh, and it's I mean it's okay. probably eighteen twenty thousand people inside a football stadium, um, and it is American football. It, uh, it it's it's yeah. a ton of fun too. So if you ever ever get that chance, those three are absolutely awesome. Yeah. So Wolfgang, uh, thank you so much. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share before we wrap this thing up? Yeah, great. I mean, um, and also if you need anything from Jeremy, let me know. I would say when you overcome our biggest problem, that is my personal explanation why motor racing in America, choose any discipline you want, IndyCar, NASCAR, drag racing, it's more enjoyable in my personal opinion than racing in Europe. The world governing body in motor racing, the FIA, I mean, sometimes they create more problems that they're helping motor racing. Uh, when you're looking into the past, um, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, uh, we had the IMSA championship, we had world endurance racing, and more, more or less we had identical rules. Then the last years, I mean, uh, drivers in IMSA or team owners in IMSA racing could not take their car over in Europe and race there, or vice versa. Uh, European teams can come to, uh, to the 24-hour Daytona, the Rolex 24, or to, to Zebring. Now, this will maybe hopefully change, as there now is agreement signed this year uh, between the ACO, the uh, Le Mans organizers, and, and IMSA. But uh, what I want to tell you with this example is that there are too many politics uh, decisions in European racing. There is no doubt that any kind of sport, motor racing included, needs a, a governing body, a world governing body as well. But when I'm looking into the past, what the FIA had done um, in, in endurance racing, in world rally racing, etc., etc., there was more damage than that was helping motor racing, and I couldn't understand understand the logic. I mean, that that was very sad and depressive for me to see. So hopefully, this will change in the future, and uh, that um, American racing, the governing bodies um, of the various disciplines, and European racing will come closer together again. Well, yeah, and we we all definitely hope that. Um, but I, I'm I'm kind of curious now, just just before we wrap up. Um, yes. About you know you 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 touched on uh, the politics uh, getting in in the way and I I couldn't agree more uh, with with yes. racing and and things of that nature. What do you think of uh, the FIA Ferrari uh, kerfluffle uh, last Friday? The fiasco about the secret uh, arrangement that they have yeah. now after the investigation. <laughs> What do you think of that? Yeah, well, I'm not even sure if you can call it investigation. I mean, I got a media release by email, I think it was last week somewhere, when I was still in Auto Club Speedway, um, that the FIA representative had a meeting with Ferrari, everything is fine. And then I think it was yesterday or two days ago, 
um, I got a statement from uh, Williams, underwritten by five or six teams, that they are not happy with the situation, how the investigation, if you ever call it an investigation, was done. I mean, uh, it looks like that Ferrari, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm doing wrong to FIA or wrong to Ferrari, has a little bit special rights, right? You must treat any team in any kind of championship, including Formula One, if it is a very traditional team, a very, very successful team, a very, very rich team, equal like even a backmarker team. Let's say if, if, if this should happen to a team, what happened now with Ferrari, uh, with a team racing point, which was the Force India team a couple of years ago, there was not even a discussion. I mean, the FIA would not even have a meeting with them. That is my personal opinion, right? And I remember also in the 70s when the FIA was called FISA, F-I-S-A. That was the short initials for Fédération Internationale Sports Automotive, International Federation of Automotive Sport. I mean, when, when, when rich teams, I mean, they're treated in a different way than underfunded teams or private teams. You know, you must treat everybody in any kind of sports, racing, I mean, uh, soccer, American football, shoes, what you want, equal. You know, otherwise, I mean, there would be there would be no logic to have a governing body for for motor racing or for any kind of other sport. You know, that is my personal opinion. So when a team is not doing correct, regardless in Formula One or any kind of other motor racing championship, regardless if it is a very prominent team, a very successful team, a very traditional team. It must be, get the same treatment like like a new team or underfunded team. Otherwise, there would be no logic to have rules in, in motor racing or in any other kind of sport. Well said. I think everybody uh, here in America, we couldn't. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. We literally could not agree more. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> say everybody on the show here, uh, everybody, I'm sure listening and fans around the world could not agree anymore with that statement. So, Wolfgang, uh, I think that's going to wrap up our interview. Thank you so much for joining us here yeah. in the Formation Lab. <laughs> 